This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ZCNYC. Thanks for listening. Good morning. The Restings of the Streams and Tides by Master Hanji. Just resting is like the great ocean accepting hundreds of streams, all absorbed in one flavor. Freely going ahead is like the great surging tides resting on the wind, all coming onto the shore together. How could they not realize, how could they not reach into the genuine source? How could they not realize the great function that appears before us? A patch robe practitioner follows movement and responds to changes in total harmony. Moreover, haven't you yourself established the mind that thinks up all the illusionary conditions? This insight must be perfectly incorporated. Master Hungji is in, in our lineage um, and a predecessor to Master Dogen and um, one of the teachers of the teachers of Master Dogen and also the author or compiler of the Book of Equanimity. And um, I was reflecting um, earlier in my Zen career when I would hear a passage like this I would say to myself, um, basically, WTF, you know, uh, because I couldn't see any relationship to a passage like this in my own mind. Um, And so I had trouble relating to it. You know, what does this actually have to do with me and my practice? And in fact, I, I wrote most of this talk probably three years ago and wasn't ready to offer it, um, because I was concerned about that perspective, that it's, it's a challenging little section to relate to in a, in a personal way, and I, hopefully that's my job, to make it relatable, that I can do, uh, if, if you don't relate to it in and of itself. So just resting is like the great ocean, accepting hundreds of streams all absorbed into one flavor. What is it to just rest? To put all this down. And, uh, you know, what is this? The heaviness of the anxiety control body that we're so accomplished in living out of. The endless preoccupation with the circumstances that we've created as our life. The subtle anxiety of the ongoing search for something that will satisfy us other than whatever this one moment offers. What does it mean to just rest? When will we come home? Do we have to die to just be resting in the obscurity of living? Or can we rest in the sense of living a true connected life, a true life of being a human being? Can we rest in that? And if so, how? You know, the epitaph, epitaph, home is the sailor home from the sea and the hunter home from the hill. You know, that, that was in my diaries as a 10-year-old boy more than once. You know, that call to be home 
from the sea, from the hill. The Zazen we're doing today, it's a practice of forgetting the self, meaning forgetting our sense of being a fragmented piece of reality, you know, alone and afraid in this world that we inhabit, live in, and yet um, seems fragmented, perhaps. And what does forgetting the self mean? Does it mean to disappear? Does it mean to to have no sense of a person living in this world, of a being interacting in relationship? Does it mean you forget all that? Or is something else being offered? So let us begin by looking oh so closely at the sense of who we are and what makes us up and where where we stake ourselves and place ourselves and anoint ourselves as this being in this particular way. And we do that, of course, thought by thought, emotion by emotion. And the relationship between thought and emotion, to me, they're a singularity. Mind movement by mind movement. And, you know, it's like a, a Russian rushing freight train, you know, if you stand by the railroad tracks and the I lived in Pittsburgh for a while with the endless cars of coal coming in and empty cars going out. And, you know, I remember one time I I was waiting to cross the tracks and I counted the cars. It was a hundred and something. And uh, it's a lot of cars, Uh, railroad cars. Uh, It seems endless. Um, And, you know, that's kind of our mind. You know, car after car after car after car. You know, when will this fucking train ever end? It's not going to. You know. And so who are we? What are we creating as ourself? Because what we're creating is, that's our experience of ourselves. That's our mind. You know, and to acknowledge that, to actually acknowledge that we are creating ourselves with our mind, our thoughts, our places that we have so skillfully constructed and made as our life project is is important, I think, because it it invites us to be empowered to to look at that mind and ask ourselves, is is this the mind I want? Am I the person I want to be? And when we don't do that, um, we put walls around ourselves and say, you know, this is who I am, and this is the rules of my life that I have carefully constructed to um, build these walls. And my job is to follow those rules. And so off we go, following those rules of our life, you know, into relationship, into job, into um, all the history of our life and to the ways we navigate things until the rules of our life become fixed and inviolable, if that's a word. And um, instead of those rules being there to protect us, they now define us. So Hongji says, just resting is like the great ocean accepting hundreds of streams, all absorbed into one flavor. 
So those hundreds of streams are really all of reality, but particularly we choose the ones that we will accept and the ones we won't accept. And in a way, this practice is just about stepping back far enough from our rule-driven life to see how much more there is to us, how many more options there are other than what we've defined as this is how it should be, and this is right, and I have to do it this way. We don't even think that. It's automatic. But what we do think is when you don't do it the way I want you to do it, we don't even think that because it's so automatic. We just react, emote. And so, um, you know, when it's little ways, we can be generous. When it's um, larger ways, violates the rule, Uh uh-uh. So this practice, as you've heard many times, is backwards. You know, one of the images in, in Zen is the practitioner you know, riding an ox, facing backwards. Why not facing forwards? Backwards. I remember a teacher of mine, um, I I forget the specifics of it, but they were eating lunch, this years ago, and they put jelly on something that would never occur to me to put jelly on. Something absurd. I don't know if it was asparagus or, you know, something that, you know. And my eyes were bugging out of my head. And he looked at me and he said, yes. And I said, well, I've never seen anyone put jelly on asparagus. I don't remember if it was asparagus. And he said, yeah, well, okay. You know, that's your problem. (laughs) He didn't say that. He just said, okay. But, you know, I mean, he was free in that particular way to do that. And um, that... um, has served me very well and also led to a lot of people making fun of me. Um, That's okay. I'm a big boy. You know, I can, um, you know, put honey in my soup and make it sweet, um, even in a Zen monastery. And people make fun of me. You know, the lentils taste great with honey if you ever have lentil soup, etc. So... You know, a backward step, our sense of, you know, a fixed self, a, a being that we know and bound up in our knowing, literally bound up in a, the duct tape of our knowing, um, not advancing, not advancing. You know, opening up the hand of thought, as one well-known Zen master speaks of. Can we, in the midst of our Zazen, in the presence of our zazen, in the awareness and lucidity of our zazen, actually not step forward. Just refrain from stepping forward. And you do that with simple awareness of the automatic uh, energy that we step forward with. And just simple awareness. Bodhidharma said, the mind's capacity is limitless. Your capacity is limitless. And its manifestations are inexhaustible. Seeing forms with your eyes, hearing sounds with your ears, smelling odors with your nose, tasting flavors with your tongue, every moment or manner of experiencing, it's all your mind. I mean, no mind, no experience. Really that simple. 
So what we experience in every regard is just our mind. But where is this mind? When you look for your mind, and here's a challenge. You know, look for your mind. You can't find it. But I'd like you to prove me wrong. Of course, you're not proving me wrong. You're proving Bodhidharma wrong. So far, you know, it's like that $10 billion reward if you come forward with the cure for cancer or, you know, whatever. So far, no one's claimed that reward. What we call mind, fundamentally, our fundamental awake mind is simply clarity. That's it. There's no thing in clarity. There's no not thing in clarity. There's nothing to talk about, and yet it's completely clear and present. It's present. It's responsive. It's boundless. It's loving. And it's awake. That's you. That is you. And it comes packaged in the perfect package. Your body, your life, your karma, your neurosis, your anxiety, your fear, your joy, your obsession. That's the perfection of your being. So clarity is a name for our our non-existent sense of a self. And when that self is seen through, it's completely apparent. It's obvious. It's like, duh, how did I miss it? Because it's been here all along. It's always been here. Bodhidharma said, Tathagata, the one who thus comes, the Buddha. Tathagata's forms are endless. And so is their awareness. Don't be fooled. He's speaking about you. The endless variety of forms is due to our mind. A Buddha's ability to distinguish things. Whatever their presentation or movement is, is the mind's awareness. Our ability to distinguish things is simply awareness. It can do this because the mind has no form. And the mind's awareness has no limit. So it can distinguish things. But it's never fooled. This fundamental mind of yours, that's clarity. It's never fooled. It can distinguish, and among the distinguishing is awareness of the whole thing. So forms are endless. Our awareness is endless. And this is our mind. And we encounter our mind as mind when we practice, especially when we sit zazen. We sit, and for a long time, all we see is our thoughts about things. Right? I mean, that's what we seem to encounter, is our thoughts about things. We're not encountering the things, right? I mean, you're just sitting there. Where are you encountering the things? Other than the thoughts, if you want to call thoughts a thing. We're encountering our thoughts about things. And so our thoughts are really thoughts about our images of things. They're not even the things. They're about our pictures of things. 
And it's challenging to understand what it means to realize things directly because we think in these pictures called thoughts. We're very visually, thoughtfully oriented. I mean, think about a fantasy. What's your favorite fantasy? Don't tell me. But think about it. You know, and it's, it's a picture of something, right? Of how, usually, how things should be or how I want them or how I don't want them or fill in the blanks. But where's the thing itself? So to realize things directly cuts through all that. And we don't, for the most part, experience the reality of things as they are. And because of that, there's immense suffering in the world because we're projecting our thoughts onto things. And, you know, that's the Buddha's first teaching, that life, as we ordinarily understand it, that's my addition to it, which is probably not original, is suffering. Life from the separate point of view, from the thing point of view, inherently creates distance, inherently creates disenfranchisement, powerlessness, because we're not actually perceiving things as they are. So we create things when there are no things. I'm not saying there's nothing, but there are no things. If you can produce a thing, I'd like to see you do that. A thing which is permanent and fixed is that thing and will not change. Another challenge that no one's collected on yet. There are no separate boundaries here. There's no fixed things. But we try. And the thing we fix most is our sense of self. What is that? It's our anxiety. It's our fear. It's our joy. It's desire. The Buddha termed it as desire. But that desire is with a capital D. That desire is a demand for something other than what is now and who we are now, and what is now. And even the word now is at a distance from this. And if you understand it, I would hope you would let go of that understanding and just let it permeate you. Because what I'm talking about doesn't belong to the world of understanding. Understanding is another thing. So a fundamental being or thing is simply the appearance of something that is actually already changing. So where is that thing? That's a thing. It's already changed. It's some other thing, which is not a thing, if I'm not confusing us with the language. And so we experience through our thoughts about things. And we experience each other through our thoughts about each other. That begins to get scary, at least to me. You know, are you seeing me as I am, or are you seeing me through your projections? Well, we know the answer to that, which is not personal to me, but to each of us. And so what's the results of taking our thoughts and perceptions about you rather than experiencing you directly? What would it take to experience another person directly? I think the answer is pretty obvious. Just resting is like the great ocean accepting hundreds of streams, all absorbed into one flavor. How can you experience someone Just resting. What would you experience? Who would you experience? What would that person be? How would they be defined? Can you begin to see how open this is? 
Can you begin to see where this goes? Can you begin to see how generous that can be in spite of our tendency to protect ourselves and close our heart? And yet, seeing the option of that, seeing all the streams, we can practice that. Do you close your heart? Do I close my heart? Of course. That's simply what this practice is completely about. Because we have a discriminating consciousness, consciousness, we separate what is inherently whole into pieces. And we give these pieces names and identity and a shape and form. Heart Sutra 101, right? And so we use our discriminating consciousness to create a world out of our discriminating consciousness. We separate up the world into pieces. We're trained, well-trained to do that. And then we live out of that. From consciousness, self-consciousness, if you will. As, as a re- prerequisite condition comes name and form. That's what the Buddha said. From consciousness comes name and form. And at the same time, from name and form comes self-consciousness. Two arrows in the equation. In the, um, I'm not going to pronounce this well, Nalaka Kalapiyo Sutra, also translated as the sheaves or bundles of reeds discourse. Shariputra uses this famous analogy to explain the interdependence of consciousness and name and form. He says, it's as if two bundles of reeds were standing, leaning against one another. In the same way, name and form as a requisite condition, from it comes consciousness. And from consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. So you have two things leaning against each other, name and form and consciousness. Awareness, you. And from you comes name and form. Perfect circle. No way to avoid it, right? But it says, if one were to pull away one of those bundles of reeds, the other would fall. If one were to pull away the other, the first one would fall. In the same way, from the secession of name and form comes the secession of consciousness. And from the secession of consciousness comes the secession of name and form. Bodhidharma says this very simply in a different way. Deluded people don't know who they are. So the term here, consciousness, means means consciousness of a self, a separate self. Deluded people don't know who they are. That kind of sums it up, doesn't it? We think we're our sense consciousness. We think we're this material body. We tend to get lodged in our fears about ourself, what affects ourself, and what challenges our identity. In fact, in a way, that's our whole life. And the lodging takes over our world. It's not hard to see. So we can see, feel, and think as if the tiny little pinhole that we're looking at onto the world, the tiny little pinhole is ourself that we're looking out is the whole thing and therefore we're justified in our aggressiveness. And the aggressiveness takes every form, forms you wouldn't necessarily think as aggressive, as aggression. Every form of self 
being as aggression. If you want to look close enough, every thought is a form of aggression. Think about that. So inherent in this understanding of ourself is a separation. We're apart from life. We've got this little pinhole, and that's what we see. You know, And outside that pinhole, we don't see anything. And that creates distance. It creates a deeply flawed view of ourself and others. And thus, the suffering. A real body is the body of the Tathagata. It's the body of the Buddha. And it exists, says Bodhidharma. It exists, says Bodhidharma, without existing. It's not a thing. Because your real body does not change. It's not subject to change. It's unborn and it's undying. It wasn't created when you came in at the beginning of the show, birth. And it's not going away when you're leaving death. So we should realize that the Buddha nature, our real body, is something we have always had and always will. Yet it exists without existing because although because it's completely present. It's not a thing. It, it is not a thing. We can't locate it, objectify it, know it, but nevertheless, it's right here as you are. And as we sit zazen, slowly our understanding of this, our insight, or prajna, begins to develop as our own experience. It's been there all along, but hidden beneath the, the clouds of our desires, and our self-centered funnel that takes all life into myself so that we can assess that and weigh that as want, don't want, numb and dumb. You know, with this funnel for everything we receive. But if you sit, and if you're willing to struggle with your own pain, your own confusion, your own created suffering, In spite of our self, clarity happens. Of course, we want to grab onto that clarity and make it a thing and understand it and pin it on the wall and have it. Of course, it doesn't work like that, does it? The clarity is direct perception without a sense of self. Bodhidharma said, our nature is mind and our mind is nature. This nature is the mind of all Buddhas, of all beings. And I might add, all non-Buddhas, although we may not have realized this. Non-Buddhas do not realize their Buddha mind, and so they keep searching outside. So I just described the world, right? Everybody's, everybody's looking. Everybody's stuffing, as Daito said, used to say all the time, 10 pounds of shit into a 5-pound bag. You know, trying to stuff the whole world into this body so we get... So someplace along the way, we get what we want. So we'll grab more and more and more and stuff it in. So Bodhidharma said, just know your own mind. Beyond your own mind is there is no other Buddha. Know your own mind. I mean, this is wonderful. It's really simple. He really reduced it to a very simple fundamental formula, recipe. We have everything we need already to know our own mind. 
And the realization is that we, are, we are already are what we are realizing. That's the realization. You don't have to go anyplace. You don't have to do anything. You just have to know your own mind. So here it is. Sit Zazen, practice a moral life, realize your own mind, and apply that in every set of circumstances around you. Apply it to all, every bit of your conditioning, which hurts like hell, I might add, but also offers you immense freedom. Apply it to your faults, your clumsiness, your stupidity, your failures, and you will see clearly that there cannot be any failure. In a relative sense, sure, we do better and worse sometimes. But that's not what's important to our life. The term Buddha is Sanskrit for aware, miraculous awareness. And that's what we're doing here. And it's easy to sit in Zazen and kind of drift along, you know, let the current of Zazen just take you along. But unless there's an aspiration, a dedicated aspiration, and a willingness to take the energy that this body lives on and apply it to our zazen, not much is going to happen. And it may take us many, many years or not ever for us to realize what we have to do as an individual to actually not get it right. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking actually manifest our life in a way that's genuine and whole. And the whole way of that practice, if there's the energy to awaken, is that path. You can't screw it up. It's, it's where we've brought ourselves. So responding and perceiving, arching your eyebrows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet, it's all your own miraculous aware, aware nature. And this nature is your mind. And the mind is Buddha. And Buddha is the path. And the path is Zen. But Bodhidharma says, the word Zen is one that remains a puzzle to mortals and sages. Seeing your nature is Zen. Unless you see your nature, it's not Zen. There it is, right in front of you. Unless you see your nature, it's not miraculous awareness. It's just our deluded consciousness, moving our mouth, our hands, our feet, thinking our thoughts, blinding us to the justification that if it feels right, I'm right. Thank you very much. Next story. Songji says, Freely going ahead is like the great surging tides riding on the wind, all coming on the shore together. How could they not reach into the genuine source? How could they not realize the great function that appears before us? So he starts by noting That just resting is the great, like the great ocean accepting hundreds of streams, all absorbed into one flavor. And that's what we have to rest on. One flavor. All that's coming in, resting. And, and this is not linear. We're not waiting for a sequence of events here. It's all happening together. Freely going ahead is like the great surging tides riding on the wind all coming together on the shore together, going forth into your life. How could this not reach the genuine source? If you are genuine in your practice, in your intent, in your heart, in your willingness to pry open the steel doors of our heart and open it 
with some love and generosity, starting with your own heart and extending it from there. How could you not realize the genuine source? How could you not realize the great function that appears before us? Your great function, the function of this miraculous world. So we sit, because that's the doorway. Genuinely sit to the best of our ability. Not marking it as right or wrong, not grading it. We're not grading papers here. We do the best we can with who we are and our body and our mind. So we sit, we sit some more, and we live. Or we don't sit, do not enter miraculous awareness, and we die. Your call. Life and living is sitting. Sitting is living. It's the time I think we're more genuine and awake than any other time. If we understand our practice in this way, how could we not reach the genuine source? For each person, that's going to have its own sense and flavor and appearance, because each of us are different. The goal here is not some miraculous experience. It's genuine life in the moment. And that's always available to us. A patro practitioner follows movement in response to changes in total harmony. We can do this, but perhaps we don't. And what happens when we don't? What do we do? Well, we practice. We do the best we can. The don't is another thought process, another measurement. If the integrity of practice is there, we're there. Nobody starts from that place of wholeness and clarity. The Buddha didn't start there. You and I don't either. No one is not, no one is always completely in total harmony. The Buddha sat Sazen after his awakening. Why, if he was completely awake? What does it mean to be completely awake? What does it mean to be completely awake in Sazen? What does it mean to be completely awake in your Sazen? So we simply start from where we are. It's the great secret of practice. Wherever you are, that's fine. That's fine. It's always been fine. Start there. Moreover, haven't you yourself established the mind that thinks up all the illusionary conditions? This insight must be perfectly incorporated. That's the heart of it. Haven't you yourself established the mind that thinks up all the illusionary conditions? What does it mean to be responsible for that? It means to, to see, you know, we're crazy. We're out of our mind. With all those thoughts and things that we rely on to shape our life. It's no, no wonder our life is so screwed up sometimes. You know, we're, we're relying on quicksand. Our thoughts. Bring me your thoughts, you know, is one of the koans. Bring it to me. Bring me your mind. And so really understanding this and seeing it's the first truth, the first noble truth that life is suffering. This is it. Really buying that and and giving up on the understanding that if I just do this in this way, I will not suffer. 
If I just da 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 I will not suffer. And that may be true for some period of time. That itself is suffering, because that will lead to suffering. So I don't emphasize suffering when I teach, because, you know, just how I relate to practice and how you relate is fine. It's universal. It's not that terrible things do not occur and are not occurring. And we will be the recipient, indirectly or directly, of these things. But those terrible things, when they occur, is the place that we truly have to begin to practice when we're dealing with the pain and suffering of our life. There's terrible things going on in this country. But do you know they've always been going on in one way or another? In this country, in this world? That's what the Buddha was pointing at. He wasn't saying, well, when things get terrible. People have been starving to death since the time of the Buddha and before. They're starving to death now. And we're worried about a Supreme Court justice? Well, we should be worried about a Supreme Court justice. But that's just the beginning. Where is our power? Where is our life? Where will we trust? Where we put our energy? What do we need to do as this particular human being in this lifetime to help this suffering, to help my suffering and your suffering? That's the fundamental question of your life, which you can answer by ignoring, and that's an answer or by fumbling around for the rest of your life, or by clarifying to the best of your ability and stumbling into your life, which is probably the best we can do. And yet it is something that's real and powerful. And so Anji says this insight must be perfectly incorporated. So that's what I have to say today. You know, in a way it feels... um, sitting in the room and meeting with people. A lot of suffering, but also a lot of power. You have that power. And um, I just hope you use it in a way that's wise and compassionate. I hope you take it up. I mean, this world needs you and I, and each of us has our own place to live and to be. And if we're not in that place, then we should try and find that place, which is not necessarily a geographical location. But it may be. So, your mind, you're creating it. Your life. Thanks so much for listening. To find out more about the monastery's programs, weekend retreats, and residency, please visit our website at cmm.org.